0: Uh, Friends, our Bible reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, We'll be reading through the whole chapter, Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul writes, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you, when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ." And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who compare themselves, who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand, so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So good to have uh, so many of you here, uh, here in the chapel, here in the hall. And those of you who are streaming online are so great that we can be able to at least gather in part. Um, I know it's not the same. It's not the normal yet, but there's something good about longing as well. So I hope this increases your hunger for meeting back together again when COVID is gone and dusted. But also, any time we do meet, even without COVID, is a longing, isn't it? It's a longing for heaven. So it's good as God's people to always remember that the best is yet to come. It's ultimately heaven. Uh, Hopefully this is going to work. How are we going with this? Can I get my slides up? And thank you um, guys at the back. Your technology um, has been wonderful. It's been so good to have particularly Jeremy and Andrew in charge of the helm. All right. I don't think I can control this. It's really not working. Oh, I need to turn it on. Okay, here we go. I just turned it on. Now let's try. Ah, great. He said this yesterday. The fact is, I've done more for the black community than any president since Abraham Lincoln. You want to hear some other ones? My Twitter has become so powerful that I can actually make my enemies tell the truth. How about this one? I've had a beautiful, I've had a flawless campaign. You'll be writing books about this campaign. This one? I know more about ISIS than the generals do, believe me. The American president, Donald Trump, has taken bragging and boasting to a new art form, hasn't he? Which is why my last quote is this. I think I am actually humble. I think I'm much more humble than you would understand. Well... Believe it or not, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, which uh, Dom just read, it actually begins a long final four chapters of this book. And the theme of this, one of the running themes, is boasting. Uh, Paul is going to contrast proper boasting versus improper boasting. Now, when it comes to the evils of improper boasting, it's really easy to look at Trump, right? The extremes, and think, well, of course, we're okay compared with him. I mean, compared with him. I, no one boasts. But you see, when we do that, we fall into our own trap, don't we? Uh, Remember what we read in verse 12 back then, when we measure ourselves by ourselves, or when we just measure ourselves by each other, or by Trump, that is not wisdom. That's kind of foolish, and it's not humility. See, when you take pride in the fact that you don't boast as much as someone else, or Trump, that itself is a kind of boasting, isn't it? I think boasting is something that so many of us struggle with. Now, I do want to say that for some of us here, bragging and boasting isn't something that you particularly struggle with. If if anything, you might have the opposite problem. You don't actually think you're particularly special or better. I want to suggest, though, that both improper boasting and its opposite, right, self-doubt or low self-esteem, I want to suggest that they both have the same root. Uh, This week, I saw a helpful infographic Um, And it, uh... nope. Nope. Oh, my infographic's not there? Okay. I saw a helpful infographic uh, which talks about the difference between helpful and healthy guilt versus unhelpful and unhealthy guilt or shame. Um, And I don't have it there, but uh, what it says is helpful guilt is caused by actions or behaviors that break objective definitions of right or wrong, right? That's helpful guilt Not all guilt is unhelpful. Helpful guilt is objective actions, right or wrong. Unhelpful guilt is caused by actions or behaviors that break unrealistically high standards. You got that? And then shame is caused by an innate sense of being worthless or inherently defective. Now, some of you, when you hear the definition of unhelpful guilt and shame, you identify with that immediately. See, what, what are some of the drivers of both unhelpful guilt and shame? Well, there may be many factors, but the key one I want to suggest is that the approval of others or the standards we think they set for us, what they think of us, is something that we measure ourselves by, isn't it? Which means that the boaster and the self-doubter are not so different. The overconfident and the underconfident are not so different. Underneath both may be the same problem, that I care too much about what others think of me. I seek the approval of others. And here's the challenge of this chapter of 2 Corinthians 10. God is going to ask us the question today, whose approval do you seek? Whose approval do you seek? Go back to the slide before, please, Uh, because the key verses are, nope, the slide next then. The key verses are this one, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. 17 and 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. See, my prayer for you today is that God would speak his approval into your life in such a deep way that it would transform what you take pride in and how you view yourself and others. That it would then break the power of both prideful boasting and the guilt and shame cycle. I want to pray these things as God speaks to us. Father God, please speak those powerful words of your approval into our lives and break today in the people who are watching, here in person, listening online, whatever, break the power of both prideful boasting and the guilt and shame cycle. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, uh, if you want to go online for our outlines, it's going to be on go.sweck.org.au slash outline. It has the Bible passage there too. You can sync it up with your Bible apps as well. But I have three points. Uh, I want to begin by talking about how uh, Paul is really not in a good position in the eyes of the people he's writing to, right? The, the Corinthian church. And if you've been following us in 2 Corinthians, you'll know that this has been the case for a long time. And then in chapters 10 to 13, this last section, there's going to be an obvious change in tone and it becomes even clearer as we go on. Now, why is there a change in tone? Well, a helpful summary is this, that in the first seven chapters, Paul is particularly looking at past events, right? his his past events in relation to the Corinthians. And when he's speaking those chapters, he's directing it at the majority of the church. The majority of the church that formerly doubted him, there was relational strain, but mostly by 2 Corinthians, had, he had won them back. That's the majority. Right? But it's focusing on the, their past. Then in, in, in chapters 8 and 9 that we looked at last week, he's focusing on the present. That is, he, he wants to deal with and follow through on this collection in the present that he wants to make for the poor in Jerusalem. We talked about it last week. He wants to test their sincerity, test their reconciliation with Paul with this issue of the collection. That was last week's sermon. And then in these final four chapters, 10 to 13, Paul is going to look to the future because in the future he's going to come and visit. And so he's sort of preparing them for his visit. And here his words aren't directed at the majority. It's going to be turning towards a small but influential group among the Corinthian church who are still opposed to Paul and unrepentant. Now these people are going to take as their lead... And we're reading between the lines here, a group of self-proclaimed super apostles. These people who had razzle-dazzled them with their worldly and impressive speaking and leadership credentials and skills. We're going to meet them more and more over the next few chapters. Now, these chapters are like listening to one side of a phone conversation or a text conversation. But it's not that hard to piece together what they were saying about Paul. All right, Paul, this guy, oh he's so high and mighty in his letters. But in person, he's so weak and he's so unimpressive. Last time he came, uh, he left with his tail tucked between his legs, didn't even defend himself when someone stood up to oppose him. Oh, and he's so fickle. He keeps changing his mind. He's just a weak people pleaser that Paul. And of course, he doesn't have any of the marks of an impressive leader. Not at all. None of the training or the skills of of the Greek speakers and orators who, who charge money for their services. He is not TED Talk material at all. In fact, his preaching put a guy to sleep, caused him to fall out of a window. Then he had to raise him from the dead. All right? With all this in the background, it's what they think of Paul, especially this small group, small vocal group. Paul is here making a case for what motivates him. And remember those key verses, 17 and 18? Whose approval really matters? See, for Paul, it's God's and God's only. Paul performs to an audience of just one. And that completely sets him apart from the Corinthians and their fake leaders. So now to my second point. Now, this passage is in three sections, and each section reveals the kind of approval that Paul seeks from God in his life and in his work, in his ministry. You'll see it there. Now, the first part is that God approves of those who fight gospel battles. The key verses in that first section is verses 3 to 5. So let's have a look at those verses again. He says that for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Uh, You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, look, I may not use the impressive speaking skills of classical Greek speakers, but look at what I and the others who speak God's word faithfully. Look what we do have. And here he's going to draw on the image of ancient warfare. Now, a big city in the ancient world would have two main defenses. There would be the city walls on the perimeter, but then within the city walls, there would be a fortified castle or stronghold or a keep where the last line of defense could happen. Now Paul's saying he's in the business of demolishing those, right? The strongholds, the one that's right at the heart of each and every city, and at the heart of each and every person, metaphorically, who comes under the preaching of the gospel. And verse five, what happens when these strongholds are demolished? Well, he says arguments, every pretension set up against the knowledge of God, they all come tumbling down. Paul here is not talking about out debating people, all right? Really important to know that. Debating people and winning in arguments in that sort of way, that is not stronghold blasting. That's fairly superficial. One commentator I I read wrote this. It's helpful. He says, Paul's weapons destroy the way people actually think. They demolish sinful thought patterns. The mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. You got that? And this all has the final result of capturing the enemy, making the enemy willingly give up self-rule or the rule of others to come under the rule of Jesus Christ. Now, something like that, again, its not superficial. That is powerful stuff, isn't it? That is powerful. There is no power like it. I mean, how many of you have been in an argument or a debate with someone who's not a believer? And you're debating about Christianity or the Bible, You may even have won the argument. Have you been in those situations? You've won the argument. But actually, there's no change. There's no hearts captured. The person is not any closer to becoming converted. All right? You've experienced that. I know I have. Now, not that there isn't a place for apologetics or reasoning. It's important. But Paul is talking about far more than that, isn't he? He is talking about the supernatural power of God through the word of the gospel that actually will bend hearts and wills and minds and win a person over. A person like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant young Oxford professor who was basically an atheist until his early 30s. He thought there was no reason whatsoever to believe in God, someone brilliant like him. Have you met brilliantly smart atheists like him? Yet over a course of a few years, God spoke to him through the words and the lives of, of Christians, one of them being J.R.R. R. Tolkien, his good friend. as strongholds and arguments and pretensions in C.S. Lewis began to crumble. Eventually, at the age of 31, in his words, this is what he wrote, "'You must picture me alone in that room, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet.'" That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. This is what the gospel, the simple message of Jesus can do to a person when it's wielded with God's power. Now, those of you, those of us who feel scared or intimidated by our friends and family who don't believe and their reasons for not believing, you can have confidence, can't you? In the power of God through this simple gospel message. Your job is not to convert them. That's God's job. So keep on praying. Keep on delivering that message as faithfully and clearly as you can and see what God can do. He is in the business of blasting strongholds. So coming back, this is the person that God approves. The person that God approves will fight with God's gospel weapon. But he'll also fight in God's gospel way. This is important. This means that it's not being the loud, obnoxious, intellectual Christian bully. It's not commenting on every post in social media. In fact, it's mostly being willing not to fight and not to battle in the majority of situations, so much so that people might actually think that you're weak and unimpressive, lacking in intellect or sophistication. You can't stand up for yourself. A little bit like Paul. One of the guys in my Bible study group at Bankstown, he shares about his dad's a pastor. When he was growing up and the church... um, had lots of unfair and wrong things to say about the pastor, his dad. And he was like, Dad, why don't you stand up for yourself? Why don't you make a case? Why don't you stand up and argue? We know that you're in the right. And his dad said to him, it's not my job to defend myself. Jesus stays silent and so so will I. But for this, this guy in my Bible study group, that was what left an impression on him. Right? Not his dad's sermons. But the fact that his dad was willing to, at that point, be like Jesus, be like Paul, and remain silent. See, those who God approves will know when to fight and how to fight with the power of the gospel. And by and large, I've got to say, the more high-profile a Christian is, especially on social media, the worse we are at doing this, aren't we? Don't be that person. Those of you who are active blogging, writing, commenting, don't be that person. God does not need obnoxious, snarky social media warriors I get so upset and depressed sometimes when I read the threads That are just comments, and from Christians too He needs people willing to shut up And fight the battles that matter when they matter Only when eternity is at stake And only in a way that's consistent with the gospel, alright? Alright, God approves of those who fight gospel battles Next one God approves of those who use authority build up. Now, this is an important reminder also in this day and age where so many leaders and pastors are now some really high profile, removed from ministry for spiritual abuse or bullying. Now, there are no, is no place in the church, we've got to say, for those who use authority in that way. Rather, the key verse in this second section is, sec, is verse 8. See what Paul says? So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down. I will not be ashamed of it. It's almost as if the Corinthians wanted Paul to use his authority in that way. And he certainly could have. been a bully. been strong. been dominant. But look at what he does instead. In fact, look at the way that he starts this chapter. Did you notice his words right at the beginning of this chapter? By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I beg you that when I... come I mean, he could have said, by the commissioning of the risen Lord Jesus, who I saw face to face, I command you. He could have said, with the power of signs and wonders, I say to you. He didn't need to beg or plead. But he did. Why? Because he understood that God approves those who use authority not to tear down, but authority to build up. And the more authority you have, the more you are to use it in a way For those purposes. I've been a pastor for a bit over 15 years now. One of my greatest regrets as a young pastor is that I, in a couple of occasions, crushed those who were going astray. They were going astray, but I crushed them with harshness rather than worked with them in patient gentleness. I really regret that. And there are a couple of people I really hurt along the way. Because that's so different to the Lord Jesus, right? Look what Matthew, which is quoting Isaiah, says about Jesus. A bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. Let me speak to church leaders in whatever capacity. But actually, let me speak to anyone in authority. You might be a a mum or dad. You are in authority, aren't you? You might be a manager at work. You might be a boss. This is to you. How do you use your authority? How do you react when your authority is challenged? How do you express frustration? Are you harsh? Do you readily fly into a rage? Do those who you lead or sit under your leadership, do they feel safe or do they feel scared? Includes asking mums and dads that question. I wish I did better on that one as well as a dad. Look what 2 Timothy says. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be what? Opponents, enemies, must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. God approves of those who use their authority to build up and then he also approves of those in the final section who serve faithfully. All right, look at the key verses twelve to thirteen. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with someone who with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the oops, sorry, to the sphere. Of service, God himself has assigned to us A sphere that also includes you Again, reading between the lines there yeah, um, Those new leaders, those self-proclaimed super apostles They were great at boasting They were a bit Trump-like Boasting about their influence and their ministry But they were influencing And boasting to the very people that Paul had actually converted and planted and grown. You see? They were exerting their influence over the work of others like Paul and then boasting about it. And Paul says, I'm not playing that game. I know what God has called me to. I know what my task is and I'll do that to the best of my ability. And by the way, that includes you, Corinthians. My calling, my sphere of ministry is the reason why you're here. just want to remind you gently. But I'm not going to compare myself to these fake apostles because they measure themselves by each other. They pat each other on the back. They can do that because the approval of the one who called me and commissioned me is the only approval that I seek, the only one that matters. Yeah, that's what Paul is thinking. God approves of those who serve faithfully in the sphere that God has called them to. He's not asking for success, especially in comparison to others or by the world standards. He is asking... And this is the key for faithfulness. So let me ask you, what has God called you to right now in your stage of life? What are you responsible for and accountable to God for? What is that sphere? What is that? Are you a student? A son, a daughter? Are you a worker? Are you unemployed? Are you single? Are you married? Are you a husband or a wife? Are you a parent? Are you a grandparent? Are you a carer for elderly or disabled family members? Are you a church member? Are you a ministry team member? Are you a team leader? Are you a community group leader? What is it? Whatever it is, serve faithfully in that and don't compare. That is much harder than it sounds, okay? If you are a mum, or know a young mum especially, you will know there is a real thing called mum guilt. You know about mum guilt? right? Mums, especially new mums, always feel guilty. My baby can't sleep or feed well. My kid doesn't behave at preschool or do well at school. I'm working and I feel guilty. I'm not working and I feel guilty. Where does all that mum guilt come from? Is it objective? No. It comes from comparisons, doesn't it? But it's not just moms, all right? There's dad guilt, there's son and daughter guilt, there's student guilt, there's career guilt, there's carer guilt. And let me just tell you now, there is a lot of ministry guilt for those like me who are pastors. There's so much pressure on pastors and churches to perform, to be like the others, And this is all influenced, no matter what guilt you struggle with, by social media. Social media is one giant cesspool of comparisons, isn't it? Especially now, we all need to remember, God does not call us to be perfect. He calls you to be faithful. Yeah? Remember, as I said, the infographic, which I don't have, that there is a difference between unhelpful, unhealthy guilt and shame and it all comes from looking sideways to each other comparing but most of all we need to remember verse 18 don't we for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the lord commends we all need to perform to an audience of just one and it's god now two important things to note Um, Before we go to the next one, number one, uh, don't compare does not mean there are no objective standards to measure by, okay? And don't compare doesn't mean that there is no accountability or responsibility to others, no, okay? Uh, Remember, it matters to God... That we are serving Him faithfully. So He is the objective standard. His Word to us sets that standard. What He wants for us in our calling to be a son or a daughter or a parent or a single person or a married person, a worker, a church leader, all those things. All of that matters. But the point is that we learn what these are from His Word and we apply it in community, all right? Understanding what His Word says to all of those spheres. We apply it in community. So accountability, responsibility to others in my church community, my pastors and leaders, that that does matter. But here's the point. Where God's word is silent, so our guilt radars must also turn off, right? Most of mum guilt has nothing to do with the objective word of God at all. So we've got to not compare. And we've got to be content and faithful. Uh, The second thing to note is this, being faithful in your calling does not mean you stay static or lazy. In fact, We need to be open to how God will change and redirect or expand our calling. Now, Paul here is ambitious. He's going to write in these verses. He's ambitious for gospel growth. His calling and sphere of ministry, in fact, kept growing uh, from Asia to Greece, from Greece to Rome, from Rome to eventually Spain. But the point is, be faithful to where you are, And if God leads you to another sphere, work out how to be faithful there. Okay, that's the point. Be faithful where you are. Be open to him calling you to another sphere. And when he does, be faithful there. So here, are you a student and you want to just work? Or are you unemployed and you just want a job? Are you single and you wish you were married? Are you married and you just want to have kids? Are you parents and you just wish to be free? Are you middle-aged and you're wishing for retirement? Are you COVID interrupted and you wish things would just go back to normal? Well, God is saying to you today, be faithful where you are. Yes, pray about the next step, but don't stop being faithful where you are because you keep wishing you were somewhere else. Get my point? You do that and you have God's approval. And that is the only thing that matters. He is our audience of one. Final quick point, though. Got a question to ask. What if I mess up? What if we mess up? I mean, what if I know that I haven't been faithful? What if my sin or neglect have meant God's disapproval? Well, my final point is a really important one to close on. Because we need to remember that at the place where it matters the most, where our eternity is at stake, where our core identity and value lies, at that place How God views His children is always and only in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Our approval, where it matters the most, is in Christ. Yes, apart from Christ, I might be a success in the eyes of others, but I can only be a failure in the eyes of God apart from Christ. Because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, says the Bible. But in Christ through trusting and following Jesus. I may be a failure in the eyes of the world or even myself, but I can only be complete and whole and approved in the eyes of God. You see, Jesus makes all the difference because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might be right with God. Because Jesus, who is the completely perfect and approved son of God, he will take your failures and exchange his perfection and give that to you in your stead. In Christ, you can be approved for all eternity. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you will never find security and identity like that anywhere else. So will you today turn to Jesus? Let me end with a a passage that Paul actually alludes to. It's from Jeremiah chapter 9, and we'll finish here. Great words. Have a think about it. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Let's get the music team up, get ready to sing. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us such new eyes and hearts and minds that we would seek to Gain only your approval. Thank you that our approval in Jesus at the core of our identity and value is already secured. Help us as your followers to seek to be faithful to you in the spheres of life you've given us, to rely on your gospel weapons, especially when we're finding it hard with friends and family who don't know you. And help us, any of us in authority, to especially use that only to build up never to tear down. We pray you will help us in Jesus' name. Amen.